The city of Jerusalem, located in the Holy Land, was important to the world's three monotheistic religions. Jews believed that the location where Abraham nearly sacrificed his son to God and where King Solomon built the original temple to God. Muslims believed it to be where Muhammad left for heaven. For Christians, it was the city where Christ was crucified and rose again. Muhammad turned his tribes from a minor group into a global power. The Islamic Empire underwent a rapid period of expansion. The Muslims conquered the Middle East and then turned to Europe. Spain, Sicily, and southern Italy were soon under the control of the Muslims. The Arab armies took Jerusalem in 638. As part of the peace, Jews returned to live in Jerusalem, the first time since the Roman Empire drove them out. Christians were also guaranteed civil and religious liberties, but like the Jews, paid the higher saccard as non-Muslims. Under continued Arab rule, Christians and Jews could visit Jerusalem and its holy locations, and it became a place of burial for Muslim dignitaries. The Seljuk Turks were nomadic horsemen out of the Asian steppes. They converted to Islam and conquered much of Central Asia and the Middle East. When the Seljuks arrived in the Middle East, the Muslim world there was chaotic, with many small independent states fighting among each other. The Seljuks easily conquered these Muslims and added them to their huge empire that stretched from Western China to the Mediterranean. In 1070, the Seljuk Turks conquered the Holy Land. They saw Jerusalem as a sacred city, similar to Mecca or Medina, so they restricted the freedom of Jerusalem's Jews and Christians and closed the city to Christian pilgrims. The Turks now focused on Asia Minor and the wealthy Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Emperor, aware of the seriousness of their plans, raised an army to stop them. In August 1071, he met the Turks at the Battle of Manzikert. The battle was a complete disaster for the Byzantines. The emperor learned just how unreliable using mercenaries was when 20 to 35,000 men deserted just as the battle began. The emperor was captured and thousands of his men killed. Manzikert not only severely weakened the Byzantine army, it allowed the Turks to take Anatolia. Anatolia was the empire's heartland, home to the majority of its farmers and soldiers. The Byzantines looked west for aid. In 1081, Alexos I became emperor. Unable to recruit any more soldiers, he realized he needed help from the west to rebuild his shattered empire. In March 1095, Pope Urban II received the emperor's ambassador and a request for help against the Seljuk Turks. Originally, Urban wanted to send only a token army to help the Byzantines, but then he came up with a broader view. There was a lot at stake in helping the empire. This might be a chance to reunify the Eastern and Western Christian churches. It would give himself and his papacy greater legitimacy and importance. Success against the Turks might also be a way to unite the Christian world into a unified defense against the Muslims in Europe, especially Spain. Helping the Byzantines might also create less violence in Europe. The lords and knights of the 11th century lived lives of violence and conquest. The church attempted to promote a complex series of religious rules for combat. Under the peace of God, violence against church property or the clergy, women, children, the elderly, and other non-combatants 
was punishable by excommunication. Nobles could not beat the defenseless, burn houses, invade churches, rob peasants, or take their farm animals, and it also protected merchants and their goods. The truce of God, added to the peace of God, made fighting during Lent, Advent, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays forbidden. Ultimately, fighting was limited to only $80 a year, 80 days a year. Unfortunately, both the peace and the truce were not very effective. In November 1095, Urban held the Council of Clermont and gave a sermon that called both the attending nobility and the people to take back the Holy Land and the Eastern churches from Turkish control. He told his listeners that Christ wanted people of all ranks, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to drive out the Turks. The Pope now changed the approach of his speech. He addressed the general violence of the time, quote, Let those who have been robbers now become knights. Those who have been fighting against their brothers and relatives now fight in a proper way against the barbarians. He emphasized that a holy war in the East was better than the love of tournaments and warfare, as well as unrighteous wars in the West. Urban then addressed the possibility of obtaining feudal fiefs, land, wealth, power, and prestige. Quote, Let those who have been serving as mercenaries for small pay now obtain the eternal reward. Let those who have been wearing themselves out in both body and soul now work for a double honor. Let those who go not put off the journey, but rent their lands and collect money for their expenses. And as soon as winter is over and spring comes, let them eagerly set out on the way with God as their guide. The Pope now gave them the ultimate motivation. Quote, all who die by the way, whether by land or by sea or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God with which I am invested. Urban's remarks and promises won the crowd over. His listeners cried out, It is the will of God! It is the will of God! Urban immediately seized on this and further ordered that, quote, When an armed attack is made upon the enemy, let this one cry be raised by all the soldiers of God. It is the will of God! It is the will of God! Or, Deus Vult! Urban's and other clergy's preaching inspired an outbreak of anti-Jewish violence. In parts of France and Germany, Jews were seen as just as much of an enemy as Muslims. Christians blamed Jews for the crucifixion of Christ. Also, why travel thousands of miles to fight non-believers when there were non-believers in Europe? Many who participated in this violence also needed money. Crusaders found themselves indebted to Jewish moneylenders. Once they got their money for weapons, they turned on their lenders. Others wanted Jews to convert, and those who, re who refused were deprived of their goods, massacred, and expelled from the cities. Church ideology saw Christianity as eternal salvation that required all people to convert. Those who did not could be murdered in the name of God. Once Peter the Hermit heard of Urban's call for a crusade, he began preaching through the French countryside. He used his blistering sermons to arouse public support, and thousands of peasants responded. Peter organized them into a spiritually purified and holy group of pilgrims who were protected by the Holy Ghost. Peter arrived in Cologne, Germany in April of 1096 
with 40,000 supporters. By that time, Peter and his followers were starving. They plundered Jewish food and property while attempting to force the Jews to convert to Christianity. 25 to 30 percent of the Jewish population along the Rhine River in France and Germany were brutally massacred by these early crusaders. The church condemned the persecution and threatened excommunication, but the crusader mobs didn't fear retribution. Local courts had no jurisdiction over them, nor the ability to identify and prosecute a mob. The mob also believed that anyone preaching mercy was probably bribed. Approximately 30,000 people, under the command of four different princes, left Europe for Constantinople in August 1096. This was the official crusade. Most of those joining the growing crusader armies were peasants with no combat training. Some saw the army as a way to get rich or try out their fighting skills. Others saw it as a way into heaven. Some crusaders had justifiable motives. Many had relatives killed on pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and they enlisted to avenge them. The crusader's symbol was a red cross, which soldiers wore on their clothing and armor and used on their flags and banners. Those who returned successfully from the crusades wore a red cross on the back of their clothing also. The crusaders crossed into Asia Minor and laid siege to several major cities, including Antioch. The crusaders finally reached Jerusalem in 1099. Only one-third of the 30,000 remained. They attacked on multiple sides of the walled city. Jerusalem fell when the defenders abandoned the walls. The crusaders entered the city and took the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They quickly established the Kingdom of Jerusalem and slaughtered most of the remaining Muslim and Jewish inhabitants. Other crusader states were quickly set up in the Middle East, including the county of Edessa in modern-day Turkey, which lasted about 50 years when its sacking prompted the Second Crusade, and the Principality of Antioch, modern-day Turkey and Syria, and retaken in 1268. The First Crusade was a resounding success. Unfortunately, Urban II died 14 days after Jerusalem's fall and before news of the event reached Italy. The Muslims had been taken by surprise. The Middle Ages weren't nice. There were raiding parties who routinely massacred entire towns. Pirates dominated the coastline. So this bunch of Europeans sweeping through the area, toppling Islamic governments and killing Muslims, was shrugged off as another raiding party. But Jerusalem's fall and the establishment of the Crusader state was not due to the usual raiders who ran off with their ill-gotten riches. The Crusaders were staying and ruling what was now a new territory of Christendom. After the holy city fell, several other crusader states were created. These were territories founded by crusaders who went to the Holy Land and didn't want to return home, instead staying to convert infidels and demonstrate the Christian church's power, as well as enriching themselves with feudal lands. It wasn't until 1105 that the Muslims began talking seriously about retaliating. The city of Edessa was the first crusader state to be established. It was also the weakest and least populated. There were frequent attacks from surrounding Muslim states. In 1144, the ruler of Edessa made an alliance with one of these Muslim rulers 
and marched out with almost his entire army to support him. Zengi, the Muslim ruler of Mosul and Aleppo, realizing Edessa was undefended, surrounded the entire city. The Edessians resisted as much as they could, but lacked experience in siege warfare. Part of the city's wall collapsed, and Zengi's troops rushed into the city, killing all those unable to flee. Thousands were suffocated or trampled to death in the panic. Zengi ordered his men to stop the massacre, but executed all the Christian soldiers and sold the Christian population into slavery. Zengi appointed one of his commanders as the city's new governor. Praised throughout Islam as a defender of the faith, Zengi did not attack Edessa's remaining territory. Zengi was assassinated, and the Edessa's Christian ruler attempted to recover the city. However, the other crusader states refused to help, and his poorly planned expedition failed. By this time, news of Edessa's fall reached Europe. Pope Eugene III called for a new crusade in 1147. The second crusade was led by Louis VII of France and Conrad III of Germany. The armies of the two kings marched separately across Europe. After crossing into Anatolia in 1148, both armies were separately defeated by the Seljuk Turks, and Edessa was never recovered. The fall of Edessa highlighted the Crusaders' held territories' precarious existence. The disastrous Second Crusade made various Middle East Muslim states realize that the once feared Western Knights could be defeated. All that was needed was the unification of Muslim forces and a leader. In 1174, the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, Salah al-Din, captured Damascus and in 1180, the city of Aleppo. He then shocked the world by defeating the Kingdom of Jerusalem and its allies at the Battle of Hatton in 1187. Saladin was remarkably lenient with his Christian captives compared to the butchery of the First Crusade. He accepted ransoms from some soldiers and enslaved those who weren't ransomed. He permitted the Eastern Christians to remain in Jerusalem as a protected minority group. Pope Gregory VIII called for another crusade to win back Jerusalem and regain the lost holy relics such as the True Cross. Three kings took up his challenge. The Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, King of Germany, Philip II of France, and Richard I, the Lionheart of England. Barbarossa was the first king to mobilize and in 1190 traveled with his army by land to the Holy Land. The Byzantine Emperor was not happy with this Western army passing through his territory, but when Barbarossa occupied Adrianople, the Byzantines became more helpful to their fellow Christians. Disaster struck in June 1190 when Barbarossa fell off his horse or suffered a heart attack and drowned. Barbarossa's death also coincided with an outbreak of dysentery, which resulted in most of his army leaving the Holy Land. The crusade now relied on the English and French armies. These two kings and countries were not very fond of each other. Richard sailed to the Middle East, meticulous as ever, he gathered a fleet of a hundred ships and 60,000 horses. Richard took the Muslim-held Sicilian city of Messina, and then his 17,000 soldiers captured Cyprus, ensuring a good line of supply for his army. 
Cyprus officially belonged to the Byzantine Empire, but Richard proved unstoppable. The island's inhabitants were forced to pay a 50% tax on all possessions to further boost Richard's war treasury. Meanwhile, in France, Philip II gathered an army of 650 knights, 1,300 squires, and a larger number of infantry. The French sailed to Acre on the kingdom of Jerusalem's coast. Acre was already under siege by the French Gui of Lusignan, king of Jerusalem. Gui was struggling, as he now faced an army sent by Saladin to relieve the city. Fortunately for Gui, the remains of Barbarossa's army and the armies of Richard and Philip arrived by early June 1191. The Crusaders now took Acre. When sappers offered, offered cash incentives by Richard, undermined the fortification walls of the city. Richard, now known as Lionheart for his courage and audacity, achieved in five weeks what Gui had failed to do in 20. The city fell in July 1191, and with it, 70 ships, which were the bulk of Saladin's navy. Richard blemished his reputation by ordering 2,500 prisoners executed. He felt that this was an adequate response to the delay in paying ransoms, and he didn't want to release them to rejoin the enemy army. Philip returned home in August 1191 due to political problems which threatened his throne. Only one crusading king remained. Richard was the greatest general of his generation, and the campaign, despite setbacks, was off to a fine start. Richard now wanted Jaffa, Jerusalem's port, Saladin and Richard met in battle in September of 1191. The Crusaders won the battle, but the Muslim losses were not substantial. Saladin withdrew, and the Crusaders then took Jaffa. Richard now wanted to take Egypt, but his army wanted to go straight for Jerusalem, which was the Crusades' original goal. Richard marched to Jerusalem, but knew that even if he took the city, his reduced army would not be able to hold it against an inevitable counterattack. The following year, Richard returned to Jerusalem, but Saladin decided to attack Jaffa and took the city back. Richard sailed back to Jaffa and retook his city, but not much had changed. The Muslims still controlled Jerusalem, and Saladin still had an intact army. It was a stalemate, and Richard returned to England to safeguard his throne. The whole crusade was abandoned. No crusader army would ever get as close to Jerusalem again. Richard negotiated a peace deal with Saladin that ensured safe treatment of Christian pilgrims to the Holy Land in the future. There were nine major crusades, all involving Christian pilgrims attempting to liberate the Holy Land from Islamic control. The crusades went on for about two centuries, none of them successful in terms of gaining control of the Holy Land. There are no exact numbers of how many died, but estimates range from one to nine million people. Rather than driving the Muslims out of Palestine, the Crusaders resulted in making them its indisputable master. The Crusades brought the papacy immense wealth and power. It opened up trade with the Muslim world, a conduit for products from the Orient. Crusaders returned to Europe with spice and perfumes, knowledge of a world outside their own, and a taste for the exotic. Establishment of castles 
positioned along the Overland and Sea Crusade routes, offered protection, lodging, and medical care for crusaders, and made the Mediterranean safe for European vessels. Italian states like Genoa and Venice grew rich selling silk, perfumes, and spices. Bankers in Florence and Milan grew rich financing the purchases of these items. This money generated modern capitalism. So many nobles and aristocrats joined the Crusades, and many never returned to Europe, weakening feudalism. Mathematical, architectural, and historic knowledge forgotten in Europe, but saved by the Muslims, returned along with Greek and Roman manuscripts, all of which became the Renaissance's catalyst. The Crusades also led to a clear separation between Orthodox and Western Christianity and Islam, as well as with the Jews. The Crusades didn't only lead to the Byzantine Empire's collapse. With Constantinople's fall during the Fourth Crusade, commerce connections with Russia dried up and led to Kiev's fall. The Mongols easily conquered Kiev and pushed their empire further north and west into present-day Russia and as far as the outskirts of Vienna. European expansion that started in the Crusades continued with the sending of ships to the New World. European contact with the Middle East changed European society. While the Crusades were a religious failure, the Crusaders came back with spices, tapestries, drugs, sugar, and fine steel. Trade with the Middle East encouraged the development of a money economy, and feudalism began to erode. The Arabs were far superior to the Europeans in navigational and geographical novel knowledge, and they had not burnt or destroyed Roman and Greek manuscripts and the knowledge they contained. Heavy stone masonry, learned from the Byzantines, meant larger castles and churches being built throughout Europe. Italy became one of the richest areas in Europe, but all of these benefits were soon outweighed by a pandemic. The Italian port city of Genoa sent 12 trading ships to the Crimean port city of Kaffa. When the Italians got to Kaffa, they realized that the city was under siege by the Mongols. Things were not going well for the usually successful Mongols. Kaffa had a harbor, and the Mongolians did not have a navy, which meant the city could not be starved into submission. The Mongols were also dying from a plague, and every day there were less of them. Their commander decided to turn this to his advantage. He began to catapult his dead and dying soldiers into the city. The Italians left quickly. In October 1347, the 12 ships entered the Messinian harbor in Sicily. The Messinian harbor masters rode out to collect their port duties and were shocked when they climbed aboard the ships. The decks were littered with the dead and dying. Outraged and scared, they ordered the ships out of the harbor and rode back to their city. They took the plague with them. Within 24 hours, Sicily was infected. By 1348, the plague infected North Africa, Corsica, Sardinia, the Italian mainland, Spain, and France. By 1349, Austria-Hungary, Switzerland, southern Germany, the Rhine, and the Netherlands were suffering. A ship sailing from the French port of Calais carried the plague to in England in 1348, and London suffered 
violently between February and May of 1349. In 1350, the plague had reached the extreme north of England. The Scots, invading the city of Durham, caught the plague and 5,000 Scottish soldiers died, while the survivors brought the plague back with them to Scotland. In 1350, Scandinavia and the countries around the Baltic Sea were infected. Within three years, the plague had traveled as far as Iceland and Greenland. The devastating plague, coupled with the harsh weather conditions, brought an end to European colonies in Greenland. The plague traveled rapidly, at an average speed of eight miles a day. The plague was caused by bacteria dwelling in the blood of a certain flea, which lived primarily on rats. The bacteria blocks a flea's stomach. Unable to feed, they begin to starve, which drives them to a more aggressive feeding behavior. The flea continues to suck blood, but the blockage causes it to regurgitate the bacteria back into the blood of the animal the flea is feeding from. When the animal dies, the flea and its offspring jump to a new host. The plague was also spread by human fleas and head lice. The bacteria disable the host immune system. With nothing to oppose it, the bacteria multiplied quickly. The infection took from 36 hours to 10 days to incubate, so infected people spread the disease without knowing they were infected. There were three types of the plague. The first is bubonic. Here the symptoms settle in the lymph nodes. The victim begins to shiver followed by a rise in temperature with vomiting, headaches, intolerance to light, sleeplessness, and delirium. The eyes become red and inflamed. The tongue swells, covered with a thin white fur, except at the tip and edges, which turn dry and brown. The small blood vessels begin to hemorrhage, and that gives the skin the appearance of being black. This resulted in the name of Black Death. Within days, a swelling the size of an egg or apple appeared in the groin, neck, and armpits. If lucky, these buboes began to ooze pus and bleed if opened. Left alone, the pus and bacteria were reintroduced into the blood system. Most victims, from 30 to 75 percent, died within two to seven days after being infected. However, the bubonic gives you the best chance of survival. The second type is the pneumonic plague. This is carried in the air and affects the lungs. The victim got a gangrenous inflammation of the throat and lungs. There was shivering with difficult and hurried breathing. A constant cough developed with pain in the chest. The victim began vomiting and splitting up blood as the lungs became infected. The small vessels in the lungs begin to hemorrhage and saliva becomes free-flowing and bright red. The mortality rate was 90 to 95% and victims died in a matter of hours, or three days at the most. The last manifestation of the plague was the septicemic. Here the infection settles in the blood, and the brain becomes infected. The victim's temperature rises very quickly, and the brain shuts the body down. Victims generally die within 24 hours, and even today, the mortality rate for septicemic plague is 100%. No one knew what caused the plague or how it selected its victim. They called it the pestilence or the Ars Mortata. Educated people believed that the plague was spread by air, probably due to an earthquake somewhere on the earth, which caused poisonous fumes from the center of the earth to come to the surface 
and spread out into the atmosphere. Therefore, it was best to filter the air you breathed. Many put perfumes up their noses or on handkerchiefs, held up oranges or apples studded with cloves to their nose. The poor used flowers, as in ring around the rosy. Others believed that God was angry and was unleashing a biblical plague on humanity. Flagellants stripped themselves to the waist and beat their bodies with leather straps studded with metal in ritual penance three times a day, believing that this would show God how truly sorry they were for any sin they had committed. People crowded into churches to pray for God's protection. The Pope, Clement VI, believed it was due to God's anger, but he called in astronomers who blamed it on a conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars. In many countries, Jews became scapegoats. They were already hated because of centuries of Christian propaganda blaming them for Christ's crucifixion. Germans rounded up Jews, stuck them in barrels, and floated them down the Rhine. By 1351, 60 major and 150 smaller Jewish communities had been destroyed. Pope Clement VI issued two papal bulls condemning the violence and said that those who believed the plague was caused by Jews were, quote, seduced by that liar, the devil. Some people believed that being happy, avoiding bad thoughts, and drinking good wine would keep them safe, while others gave themselves up to sexual promiscuity. Others avoided eating fruit and gave more charity to the poor, while some fled to other cities, taking the plague with them, or locked themselves up away from everyone. The people of Venice sent those infected with the Black Death to the nearby island of Poveglia, and countless died there. To this day, 50% of the island's soil consists of human ash. Those that could afford doctors generally died. Doctors went from plague victim to plague victim, bringing the disease with them. They wore long leather gowns and masks with a beak which covered the mouth and nose and was filled with perfume. They recommended bleeding and emetics, which merely weakened the victims further. Other doctors believed bad smells could drive the plague away and spread dung and urine on their patients. One doctor at the papal court believed that bleeding was dangerous, but continued to bleed those cardinals he disliked. Those without the benefit of doctors treated themselves. People pressed the shaved bottom of a live chicken against the boils. This didn't cure anyone, but often infected the chickens who spread the disease. Others smeared human excrement onto the boils, hoping this would cure the sick. Many priests refused to approach the dying to administer the last rites. Monastic communities provided the most victims because of the closeness and density and the fact that they were closed to the outside world. Of 140 Dominican brothers in Montpellier, only seven survived. Gerardo, Petrarch's brother, buried 34 monks in his monastery by himself, and he and his dog were the only survivors. Dogs had a natural resistance to the plague, which cats, cows, pigs, and sheep didn't. So many sheep died, it caused a, wood, a shortage of wool. Bodies were piled up inside and outside city walls, where they lay until mass graves could be dug. This helped spread the plague. Pope Clement VI consecrated the entire Rhone River, so corpses could be thrown into it and be assured a place in heaven. 
The Black Death caused the population or total disappearance of almost 1,000 villages. In Siena, more than half the population died and work on the city's great cathedral, planned to be the largest in the world, stopped. The truncated transept still stands as proof of the plague's devastation. Europe's population decreased from 50 to 75 percent. It also killed about 50 percent of China's population and one-eighth of the Africans. Petrarch lost his Laura. At the court of Pope Clement VI, 25 percent died, including six cardinals, whose number he made up by making three of his nephews new cardinals. The Pope survived because he locked himself up in his room between two raging fires and allowed no one to enter. His food was placed under his door. As the number of serfs decreased, their wages increased and those of skilled craftsmen soared. Many serfs now refused to work for their feudal lords, abandoning their farms. Their lords were either too sick or were dying and could not go after them. Feudalism began to disappear. Agricultural prices fell and landowners were forced to pay more for farm labor. Some nobles converted their farmland to sheep pasture. Sheep rendered profitable wool and were less labor intensive than grain crops. Serfs who were no longer needed on the farms or who had fled ended up in the towns and cities, which were hard hit, but which quickly rebounded. There was opportunity in cities. You could literally walk into a house where everything had been left because the previous owners were dead. Kings took full advantage of the fact that the church and the nobility were weak. They centralized their government and economies and enlisted the more educated townspeople to staff the royal bureaucracy. Monarchies created standing national armor, armor, armies. The infantry and the artillery became the backbone of these new armies, which were far more efficient than feudal knights fighting for honor and plunder. The church suffered the most because they dealt in faith. For centuries, people had relied on the church for their safety and well-being. During the plague, the church's message had been to pray because then God would protect you. People began questioning this message because they were still dying. They were also angry that priests refused to give the last rites because it meant their loved ones died with their sins on their soul and were therefore automatically going to hell. The devastation caused by the plague and the loss of faith led to a major change in European society.